paper or in your in your head <laughs> and open it to Romans chapter 7 Romans chapter 7 and just a final uh, encouragement hopefully you plan on staying and joining us for lunch it's uh, something that we do weekly as well and uh, God has given us good gifts and people that get here early on Sunday morning and work hard at preparing it for us so so Romans chapter 7 I'm going to go ahead and take time and read through the entire chapter one more time just to remind us bring us up to speed with what we are considering here Romans 7 starting verse 1 or do you not know brothers for I'm speaking to those who know the law that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and, through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now if I do not do, or now if I do what I do not want, It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find 
to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of men. This is God's word to us. Praise him for it. Falls almost dead middle of this letter that Paul wrote to a, a church in Rome so, so long ago, and yet it was a letter that was written to us as well. God intended it to be a letter to the church throughout the centuries. And so we've been examining it, and what we've seen up to this point, many of you could probably quote what I'm about to say, and that would be a good thing. It would be a good thing that you would remember this. This letter is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of which we should not be ashamed because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek, Paul wrote. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God or how to have a right relationship with God is revealed from faith to faith, not from faith to works, but from faith to faith. For just as the scripture recorded in Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. And then Paul goes through very methodically an explanation of why we need the gospel, why we need the righteousness of God, why we need to have a right relationship with God. And he explains in chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3 and verse 20. Now we need it because we stand condemned as sinners before God. We fall short of his glorious perfection and we cannot be welcomed into heaven as sinners falling short. And, and he explains that in detail. And that is a message that goes out to the most vilest of people, to the most self-righteous people. We, we all are born into this world as sinners deserving God's condemnation condemnation, his judgment for our sin. I'm glad that isn't where the letter ended. In fact, he goes on to talk about how we get right with God. He explains why we need to be right with God, and then he explains how we get right with God, and that is in chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through chapter 5, verse 21, where he says that we get declared righteous in the sight of God by faith in Jesus Christ. The fact that he became our propitiation, the satisfaction of God's judgment towards sin. The fact that he poured out his blood and we are redeemed by his blood. The fact that him doing so allows us to be reconciled with God, to be made right with God. He explains all of that and he makes it very, very clear that that only takes place by faith in Jesus Christ. Not by works, not by keeping the law, not by being a good person, not by being better than others, solely by faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for us, which we just remembered. He gave up his life. He paid the consequence for our sin. And then he rose from the dead to secure our justification. Had he not been raised, we'd be, of all men, most to be pitied, as Paul would write it elsewhere. 
But he did rise from the dead and secured justification for those that would place their faith in him. And then starting in chapter 6 and going through chapter 8, he talks about the doctrine that is called sanctification. Now, that big, long word, theological word, simply means this, to be set apart from sin and unto God as his possession and for his use. And that's what chapter 6 through 8 is all about. It is a message that is explaining to unbelieving, particularly unbelieving self-righteous people, but all unbelieving people, how you can be right with God and what that affects in you if you place your faith in Christ. But it's also a message to believers, to those who have actually put their faith in Jesus Christ. There's a message for both unbelievers and believers in Romans 6 through 8. And it's three major points that he makes in chapter 6 through 8. Chapter 6, the, the, the main point that he makes is that as those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, we are dead to sin, both its penalty and its power, and we are alive to, to God in Christ Jesus. Wonderful. Why well, I rejoice as we went through that chapter together. Chapter 7 the primary message is this. We are dead to the law, both to its penalty and its power. You know, with sin, it was a, it was, it, we were dead in sin and we became dead to sin. It no longer could bring us the penalty of eternal separation from God. For the wages of sin is death. And it also destroyed sin's dominion over our life. And then when it comes to the, the law, we're dead to the, the penalty that the law brings upon those who fall short of God's glorious perfection revealed in the law. What we deserved, of course, was condemnation for that. And the law stated it plainly. And that's what Paul was saying. It was like, I wouldn't have known how bad I was unless the law had revealed it to me. And I deserved God's judgment. And it killed me. It killed me. It made me realize that I was dead before God. Dead in a spiritual sense. And it's, you know, the law's power over those that are dead in sin and dead under the law is shame and guilt. The law brings that upon those people who think, well, if I keep the law good enough, if I do enough, then I'll be okay with God, only to realize... <laughs> It, you don't do it so well. You don't do it so well. So it brings guilt for falling short. And it brings shame because you fall short. We're dead to that. And then chapter 8, we'll be getting to, hopefully starting next week. And that is that we are alive in the Spirit. That is the completion. This is the impact of the gospel. It totally changes us. Instead of dead in sin, we're dead to sin. Instead of dead under the law, we are set free from that. It's condemnation and the shame that it brings. But we are alive in the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. And life changes from the moment that we put our faith in, in Him because the Holy Spirit moves in and actually makes those changes in us. So that's a review uh, of where we've been. So three points that Paul makes regarding the law in chapter 7, as I pointed out, and it's on the first side of your insert, 
And the first point was that we will not sin less and live holy, which I think he represents in the chapter as being the desire of people. I want to sin less. I want to live holy. I want to not do what's bad. I want to do what's good. So we will not sin less and live holy unless we understand that we've died to the law. That the law no longer has jurisdiction over us because we died to it in Christ. He bore the penalty for us of us falling short of not keeping the law. He bore it for us. So we're dead to its penalty and we're dead to its power of shame and guilt. We will not sin less and live holy unless we understand that. It's not us dying to the, uh, sin. It's he died in our place. Understand that. It's our union with him. Primary principle. Secondly, we will not sin less and live holy unless we understand the true value of the law. And that's what we began to look at last week in verses 7 through 13. And we got through a, a couple of points that Paul makes regarding it. And he says, if you really want to understand the value, the true value of the law is that, it, number one, it reveals sin. It doesn't create sin. It doesn't make people sinners. But it reveals that they are. It reveals their actions as being falling short of God's glorious perfection. Now, that doesn't mean if you don't read the law, you don't have any sin. And when Paul said, I wouldn't have known what it was to covet unless the law didn't say you shall not covet, he still would have coveted. He, what he mean, means there is, I wouldn't know how bad coveting really is and the law, unless the law had made it clear that it falls so far short of God's desires and, and, and perfection and what he wants in us. He says the law reveals that. It reveals that about us. And secondly, it provokes sin. And that was verses, uh, verse 8, where he said, But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin is dead. So it provokes it, he says. It, it, it stimulates it, it. It arouses And We use the example everyone can understand. Science says, do not walk on grass. People walk on the grass. Sign says, don't touch. Wet paint. What do they do? They touch. You tell your child, don't touch. What do they do? They start reaching and they look at you like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Is there really going to be a consequence for this? You see, what laws do is they stimulate, is what Paul says, they stimulate the sinful passions that dwell within us to do just the opposite. It provokes us to sin. The law is not responsible for that. It's the sin that dwells in us, right? The law is just representing what God's character is like and what he wants for us. And it's important language that he uses here. Sin seizes the opportunity to produce death. And the, the word opportunity, I, I, I told you, is one that referred to uh, uh, like a beachfront for starting activities of war. It was used in a military context. So uh, an army moves in, they establish a beef, beachfront from which they can attack the enemy in several different places. That's what sin does. It sees the commandment as its opportunity to use it as a beachfront to stimulate this sinful passion and this sinful passion and this sinful passion. And then because we are people who tend to follow our passions, 
we do the opposite of what God commands us to do. So it provokes it. And then, and then the third thing it does is it condemns sin. That's kind of the section that we left off in last week. It condemns sin. So it reveals sin and it provokes sin and it condemns sin. That's the true value of the law. It doesn't provide eternal life. It can't. But it does do those things. And again, the third one, it condemns sin. Paul said in verse 9, I once was apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And I'll reread this beautiful uh, representation of the meaning of what Paul has there, written by William Hendrickson. There was a time when I felt secure, under no conviction of sin. At that time, the full implication of the law had not registered in my consciousness, had not yet become an unbearable burden upon my heart. I thought that morally and spiritually I was doing quite well. But when the commandment came, that is when it was brought home to me, what the law really demanded, I realized what a great sinner I was. It was then that I died, that is, that was the end of me as a self-satisfied, self-secure person. The law came and, and I, I died. It, it, I died. So when Paul saying regarding himself, that when he got a full and complete understanding of God's law, showing the perfection of God and how far short he fell from the perfection of God, he died. And, and what he means by that is not physical death. He didn't die physically when he realized that he he realized he was dead spiritually he had no relationship with God it was then that he became broken and contrite and and ready he was ready to receive God's grace and he did he did and his life was changed it was then that he could cry out in honesty like the the penitent tax collector in the temple that Jesus referred to the one who cried out be merciful to me, a sinner. But Paul continues there in, in verse 9 through 13. The, he says, the very commandment that, that promised life proved to be death to me. Now, what? Is he contradicting himself by saying that the law promised life? Didn't he just say or at least imply strongly that the law brought death? But he says here the very commandment that promised life. So is he contradicting himself? Well, I actually think that Paul's thinking about an Old Testament verse that he would have known by heart, Leviticus 18.5, which said this, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So, there it says, if, if kept faithfully, the law brought life, a, a blessed life, a life of abundance within the boundaries of God's righteousness, and particularly a reference to the children of Israel living in the land. If you just obey me, there will be an abundance, a good life within the land. The law was intended to help them receive that. The law brought life. The law was not designed to bring death. It, it, it directed people in the way of righteousness and peace and was meant to promote a full and good life. However, it could never 
ever bring salvation from sin. All the blood of bulls and goats that were sacrificed could not take away sin. It covered their sin only until the time when Jesus Christ would offer himself as the blood sacrifice for sin. So the law could never provide salvation from sin's penalty. Why? Because no one could ever keep the entire law. And James says if you fail on one point, you're guilty of it all. So he found that the commandment brought death instead of life. Because he, he could not keep the law perfectly. Paul understood that about himself. It resulted in a, revel, a realization for him that he was spiritually dead and deserving the condemnation that the law said belongs to sinners. As it does for every person, not just Paul. This is what the true value of the law is, is it shows us that we are condemned before God as sinners. And then he says that the reason it resulted in death was not because the law itself was sinful, but rather, he says, sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Now this this is the second time he's used that phrase. Sin seized the opportunity, used the commandment as a beachfront to launch attacks against us. And the attacks here was, it deceived me and through it killed me. So it is very, very likely that Paul's thinking of another passage here as he writes this. And I think the passage is Genesis chapter 3, where Eve was deceived by the spirit, uh, the serpent, by that uh, crafty, deceitful one. She was deceived by the serpent who used the command of God to deceive her, right? Of every tree you can eat in the garden, except this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat of that. And what the serpent did was he deceived Eve into thinking, God's kind of being a little restrictive. You can eat from every tree, just not this one. Does that sound restrictive? No, that sounds free. But she took it as restrictive because of the deception. And he, con- he confused her and deceived her into thinking, you know, that commandment is keeping me from being more like God. It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So if I eat of it, the serpent says, if you eat of it, you'll be more like God. And she believed that and she ate and she gave it to her husband and sin entered the world. I think that's what he's thinking here when he writes, sin sees the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. I was like Eve. I was deceived. And through it, I was put to death. It killed me. So I think it's important for us to understand, just as a practical matter, that some element of deception is always involved in temptation to sin. Some element of deception. Because it makes evil sound more alluring and, and it obscures the fact that the end result will be death. Whether that's physical death, can be, or if it's a death kind of life, it's, it's death. That's what sin produces. The wages of sin is death. So a person who is deceived in our context 
this legalist who ascribes the wrong function to the law, believing that if I keep it, I'll be right with God. Well, a person who's deceived into thinking that, they deserve heaven because they do pretty good. They do their best to keep the law. You know what? They see no reason for trusting in Christ as Savior. Why would they? Because they earn their right relationship with God. That's what they think. And the truth is that will lead to death. Remaining under the law, not dead to it. And then Paul gets to the conclusion in, in, the, in, this, uh, in verse 12 uh, of what he's been saying about the law. This is quite beautiful because he seems like he's been pretty harsh. Like the law does this. It's, it really has harsh consequences for people. But let me tell you what the law really is. He says the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Well, the law is God's law, right? It's God's law, and so it's character, God's character is in it, and, the, and its quality is that it represents God's nature. It reflects his glory. And, and since God is holy, what is the law? It's holy. Because God is righteous, His law is righteous, and because God is always good, God is good all the time, all the time God is good. A lot of you know that reference from that movie. Because God is good, his law also is good. The law is holy because it comes from a holy God, and, and it shows sin for what it is, right? It reveals it for what it is. It is righteous in view of the fact that the just requirements... Of, uh, of the law are laid upon people. And it's also righteous in view of the fact that it forbids and then condemns sin, falling short of God's righteous character. And it's good because its aim is to promote a life of goodness and blessing when obeyed. But it's also good because it demonstrates our need of a Savior because we don't keep it. We fall short of it. That character that is reflect of God that's reflected in law. And then in verse thirteen, Paul considers one more possible misunderstanding concerning the true nature of the law, and, and so he takes the last mentioned quality about it that the law is good, and he asks this question: Did that which is good then bring death to me? Well, it sounds like that's what he set up above, right? And that the law brought death to him. Once again, his response is, by no means. And I've uh, informed you, as a church family, that when Paul uses this repeated phrase, particularly in this letter more than any other letter, he means, well, you've got the right premise, but you've come to a wrong conclusion. So let me straighten you out on it. By no means should we ever conclude that the law brought death to him. Wait a minute, I don't get it. So, it is the right premise to say that the law is good, right? That's the premise. What is the wrong conclusion? The wrong conclusion is to say that this good law brought death. It didn't cause death. It didn't bring death in the way that we might think. It explains that it is the principle of sin living within us that the law... Uh, addresses and 
That is what produces death for people. He says it plainly. It wasn't the law. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. That's the good law, right? In order that, here's the reason, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So the law does not actually cause death. You know, in a roundabout way it may because it points out sin and sin produces death. But the law doesn't cause death. Throughout the passage, throughout this entire section, the sin is the villain, right? Sin is the villain. I mean, he twice previously said in verse 8 and verse 11 that sin sees the opportunity through the commandment to produce death. And then here he says in verse 13 that sin produces death, very plainly. Different words, but the same exact meaning. Sinful passions are aroused by the law, and because people do what their passions drive them toward, they sin. And death is the result. So the law doesn't produce death. Actually, it reveals that death is deserved because of sin. Right? Sin. And notice just also in that language, this process of, you know, the law and sin and the rousing, provoking, all that, and then a producing death. This, this whole thing, he says, was done with a, a, a purpose in mind. And he identifies actually two purposes he says, in order that sin might be shown to be the uh, sin and, and that you know, it might become exceedingly sinful, if you will. So the first of those two purposes is sin would be shown for what it is. A terrible offense against a holy, righteous, and good God. And secondly, certainly connected to it, is that sin might be seen for what it really is. It is ugly. It is terrible. It is offensive. It is evil beyond measure. And that is so because it produces death. Sin produces death. So, at this point in the paragraph, in in verses 7 through 13, we need to understand we will not sin less. And live holy unless we understand the true value of the law. It's not, its value is not to make us right with God. It does not have the ability to do that. We must understand that a legalistic lifestyle will not give us a right relationship with God, nor even a good relationship with God. The law itself will not keep us from sinning. Rather, it will point out how sinful we are. It will stimulate us to sin more and it will make us miserable because it will produce shame and guilt in us for our failures to keep it. Now again, this is all addressing primarily the religious unbeliever, the one who thinks, I can have a right relationship with God by keeping the law. But it also impacts those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, but then have moved into this legalistic lifestyle, ascribing the wrong function to the law, which means that they think, well, I'm saved by faith, but I can only maintain a good relationship with God by keeping the moral code. Both are going to produce one thing, 
death. Death in some form. Spiritual death. A death kind of life for the believers, like life of misery, etc., etc. So recognizing the true value of the law should result in us understanding one more thing. It's not stated here in the, in the passage, but it is where Paul is driving a story and it becomes clear at the end of the chapter and then revealed in chapter 8. And that is the ultimate purpose for the law, the true value of the law is that drives us to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because we then realize it was Jesus who fulfilled the law. Never broke it, ever. And consequently, he could die in our stead. He could bear the consequence of our law breaking, which he did as he hung on the cross. And all the weight of sin. We were singing about it. I was, I was rejoicing in the songs that we were singing because I was like, oh man, this is Romans. This is Romans 6, 7, and 8 that we were singing. And, uh, you know, he... As he died on the cross, he bore the consequences of the, all those that had broken the law. Isn't that gracious? Isn't that merciful? So the law actually shines a light, a bright light toward the grace of God, which provides forgiveness of sins through faith in the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will deliver us from this death? He's going to say at the end of the chapter. We're not going to get to it today. I think that's obvious to all. And that's okay. You can just bring your insert next week and we'll do side two. How's that? We'll do side two next week. But let me end with just a hint of where we're going next week then. Some of you will remember this song. I fought the law and the law won. I fought the law and the Law one. Remember that song? I think most of us here are old enough to remember it when it came out. But if you listen to pop music from 50s, 60s, 70s, you'll hear it every now and then there as well. That, that particular line, which gets repeated over and over and over and over again, ad nauseum, ad infinitum, you know, just... That's the line of the song, I fought the law and the law won. And well, it wasn't written about spiritual truth. It was like I fought the times. I fought the human law and the law won. But it does express the idea that Paul is going to cover in verses seven, uh, chapter 7, verses 14 through 25. He, he describes a terrible struggle, a terrible struggle that is true for anyone who fails to understand that in Christ you're dead to the law, and in Christ you, you need to understand the true value of law. If you don't understand those two things, this is going to be your struggle. And, and this is true regarding those who are righteous unbelievers who think that being right with God is earned by virtue of keeping the moral code, as well as those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ to gain a right relationship with God, but then conclude that having an ongoing good relationship with God is maintained or depends upon keeping the moral code. And what we see in this last section, or we'll see next week, is Paul's third point regarding the law, and that is that 
we will not sin less and live more holy unless we understand our inability to keep the law. We're just not capable of doing it. So what that's going to lead to is an abandonment of that false thinking. Thinking that you can be right with God or okay with God if you just live a good enough life. That's the the gospel of humanity. Right? If you even believe in a God. The way God works, he must work like us. Grading on a curve. You know, and and all you've got to really be concerned about is doing better than others. Because you're not going to measure yourself up against God because you you realize I fall so far short. But if I measure myself up against Steve or, or Jack or Tom or, you know, or some other person that, you know, doesn't even have an interest in God things. It's like I come out smelling like a rose or shining, shining brighter than any of them, you know, because I'm so good at keeping the law. Surely God's going to grade me according to that and let me in based on that. What right do you have to enter into my heaven? Well, I did better than everyone else behind me. You know that, God. Oh, the pride of that way of thinking. But that is the way that most people who have any sense of God and having a right relationship with God think. What is also striking is that most people would recognize, well, the law of God, the Ten, you know, the ten Commandments, that reveals to us how we ought to live. And if we do well at keeping those, then we'll be okay with God. But out of that same group of people, over 90% couldn't name even three of them. You know, of the ten. I was like, so you kind of get the hypocrisy of that way of thinking fallenness of that way of thinking. Paul's making it so absolutely clear, isn't he? That a right relationship with God comes one way and one way only. is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Well, what about works then? What about keeping law? Isn't that important? Yeah, it is. Works will be there. Keeping law? Yeah, I think it represents God's character well, and God wants me to live... Like that. What? You're confusing me now. Well, don't be confused. The one view says, I've got to do this to be right with God. And the other understanding, the right understanding is that I do these things because I am right with God. It's the fruit of what the Holy Spirit brings out of my life, not me paying for something that I receive from God based on my own merit. So entirely different. So make sure you understand this beautiful gospel. Your life depends on it. Lord, we are thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Doesn't matter what background, what ethnicity they have, their they're standing in the world, whether rich or poor, uh, wise or simple. It, it just doesn't matter. The gospel is for everyone who would believe it is the way to be right with God, and we're so thankful for it. 
we rejoice in your goodness to us in Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, as we continue this study together to understand what he has done for us. That we, we who have placed our faith in him are dead to sin's penalty and its power. We're dead to the law's penalty and its power. And we are alive to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. We praise your name. Now, Lord, we praise you, too, for the food that we're going to eat and, and those that have prepared it for us. It's part of your goodness to us, and we, we give you thanks for it. So all glory be to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Remember, pictures over here if you need.